Okay, let's um, <coughs> let's look at uh, a fundamental issue, which I hope will be demonstrated by one of the central features of this. Let's look at a fundamental issue, which is raised by this week's parasha, which uh, I hope will build a framework for us to understand something deep and something of practical significance, practical importance. Okay, let's try again. The, there's a fascinating nucleus, nucleus of an idea which begins a process of cosmic significance, a process that runs throughout history, throughout Jewish history, throughout the world's history, that begins in this week's Parsha. And that is the battle in the womb of two brothers. <coughs> Rivka is pregnant, she has twins, they will be Yaakov and Esav, Jacob and Esau, and while yet unborn, they battle. They have, a, they have a battle. One child is pulling in one direction, another child pulls in another direction, different occasions, certain situations motivate the one child to, as it were, express itself, others, the other child, she feels this battle within her, she goes to find out what it means, and she's told that she's carrying two nations, as it were, the roots, the root souls of two nations, the Jewish people and the nation called Edom, which is the, that nation which <coughs> is represented in the modern age by the exile that we find ourselves in now. Hopefully some of this discussion will be relevant to the situation we're going through as well. The general exile that we find ourselves in now is called Edom, that is the Western, Western nations and their ideology ideologies. The roots of those two pathways, if you like, are really these two children. That's Yaakov and Esau. These two, these two twin brothers who start off as, as twins. And they pull in different directions. What exactly was the battle that they were, that was being expressed there? What exactly was this battle between the two of them? So Rashi says that the battle was the battle of two worlds. The battle of two worlds, this world and the next. They were really fighting about this world and the next. One identified with this world, Esau, that's his identification. And Yaakov identifies with the higher world, the next world, the higher world. That's his, his identification. And there's a battle over these two worlds. Now this is sometimes understood to mean that they were battling because each one, each one wanted his portion. Each one wanted to express his own wants, to express really his own, his own identity, the point of his own attachment. And therefore, they strive in opposite directions. That causes the battle. But a moment's thought will show you that that, does not, that doesn't make sense. If two people battle over two things because one wants one and one wants the other, then you don't have an argument, you have an agreement. If there's a cake, and I want one half and you want the other half, Right? There's no argument about that. You take the one you want, I take the one I want. It's not a battle. If one of them wants this world and one of them wants the next world, then what are they fighting about? And that's not the correct understanding. The correct understanding is the language of Rashi is that they battle over two worlds. And the truth is, the truth is that they both want both worlds. That's the problem. There's no problem if I want A and you want B, if there's an A and a B. The problem is, yeah, the problem is that the battle really is for which of these worlds is the definitive one. That's the battle. The battle here, the question really is, that Esau wants his world and Yaakov wants his, but the question is, Esau doesn't just want his world. He wants to define both worlds in terms of his. And Yaakov, equally, equally strongly, wants to define both worlds in terms of his identity. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a pitched battle here, which is the beginning of all, of all the real battles in ideology that have, that have expressed themselves in the world since. <clears throat> Let's try and descend into this and understand it, and also bring it to its practical expression, which I believe we can understand by looking at the mitzvah of Shabbos. Shabbat. What is the idea of Shabbos? What is the mystery of this day? What does it have to do with our identity in the world and the non-Jewish identity or set of identities? 
Let's see if we can try and study that idea together and understand why the idea, the concept of Shabbat is central to the Jewish identity, that, that a person who keeps Shabbos is identified as a Jew. It's that big. It's that important. It's that central. Why is it? Why is it that a day of rest, one in seven, where you stop doing what you normally do, why is that more central than many other things? See if we can dispel some misconceptions about it and learn some, learn something, hopefully a new, a new insight, a new angle, new insight. What is the nature of the battle? What's the nature of the argument? What were the personalities of these two children, these two, these two people? So, you have to, we have to understand, Asav's character, the character, the personality, the persona, if you like, of Asav, is that he's interested in certain things. For example, one of the features of his character is that he had the power to ensnare. Right? He was a hunter. He was able to, to trap, as it were, ensnare his father's consciousness. That means he was able to convince his father, Yitzchak, that he was a particular kind of individual. But what's fascinating here, what we need to extract is this. How did he do this? He, he, he convinced his father that he was spiritually great. That in fact he was, he was able to he was able to to take the lead right, in this relationship between him and his brother. And the way he did it was being very, what appeared to be spiritually deep. He used to ask his father complex halachic questions, subtle halachic questions. And the examples that are given are very, inst- very instructive. The example, he used to ask his father whether you take maisa, maisa means you tithe, you take one in ten, from salt or from straw. These are two categories. Normally, one takes maisa, you take a tenth right, from produce. He asked his father, is it halachically obligatory to take tithe, that means to take off, that sanctified one in ten. Right? Do we take that from salt, and do we take it from straw? What does this mean exactly? What does this mean? What's the nature of that question? But, the concept really is like this, that there are two facets to the world, the two aspects to the world. Most classically, or perhaps in the most, in the largest sense, we would say, we, we would categorize them as this world and the next. But the importance of it, the projection of that reality, what we call this world and the next, projects itself into the world in a duality that has to be understood. And that duality pervades all of reality. I'm not sure that this is a concept that's a central or familiar, even a familiar concept in Western thinking, but it's absolutely central in Jewish thinking. And that is that all manifestations, all things that manifest in the world, have two, <coughs> two dimensions. They have the central essence and they have the surrounding vessel. Right? In the Kabbalistic language, this is the lights and the vessels. Also needs a lot of thought and a lot of discussion. But there are always two dimensions. There's the fruit and then there's the peel or the shell that surrounds the fruit. It's essential. It's essential. It protects it. It enables it to be what it has to be without the peel, without the shell. The nut is not what it should be. The fruit cannot be developed into what it needs to develop. If you've got those two those two facets of reality. And throughout Jewish thinking, these, this duality is pervasive. Right? Perhaps the most general expression of this in, in halachic terms, we, co- we talk about ikar and, ikar and tafel. Ikar and tafel. Ikar means the essence, and tafel means that which is subservient or subsidiary, ancillary or secondary. Right? For example, in many, halachic, in many areas of halachic application, we look at what is primary and what is secondary. And the essential thing to grasp is that the secondary thing melts away. That means it's there only to serve the primary thing, and that becomes its identity. The analogy in the body, by the way. What's the analogy in the body? What's the analogy in the body of, 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 of these, this two, these two facets of reality? Handedness. Handedness. That you, there's a right and a left hand. Why are we created that way? Why are we created the dominant hand, and then there's a hand that's not do- the non-dominant hand? That's because that's a manifestation, one manifestation in the body of the concept that there's a dominant essence, and the other one has to, has to help and be secondary in such a way that they both achieve the function together. I mean, the, 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 the powerful, angle of this, powerful angle of this analogy is if that the wrong hand becomes dominant, then both fail in their task. Right? To put it bluntly, if you try brain surgery with your left hand, if you're right-handed, 
then, you know, the patient will, will have some problems. He probably never ob- object, but uh, that's only a <laughs> question of... This is a question of, of practicality. The point is that when the right hand, the dominant hand does what it has to do, and the non-dominant hand is supportive, then both achieve a, a fulfilled and perfect function. But when the non-dominant hand tries to become the dominant one, you see there's a destruction which both fail to achieve what they have to achieve. The world is set up that way. Ikar and Tophel, you have many applications. Halakhically, I'll give you one. What happens when you carry an object in a vessel? Let's say you use a vessel to carry an object. So the halakhic concept is, if the vessel is there only to carry the object, to hold the contents, it disappears in importance halakhically. Example would be, let's use a Shabbat example, right? We want to talk about Shabbos this evening, we want to work that out. Let's assume that you, that you carry something on Shabbat. On Shabbat, you may not carry from one domain to another. So let's say you carry from your home to the street. That's prohibited on Shabbos. Right? That's one of the 39 prohibited categories of action, right? of, of creative work on Shabbos. You carry from one domain to another. What happens if you carry an object in a vessel? Let's say you have some food, and what you want to carry is the food. But you don't hold the food in your hand, you put the food in a pot, in a vessel. So halakhically, the concept is that the vessel is there only to enable you to carry the content. <coughs> halakhically, the vessel has none of its own importance. It may be essential, but that's, you, you're constrained to use it because you can't do the thing without it, or you're using it in order to be able to do This goes so far. For example... Let's say you are carrying some amount of food from your house to the street. And it turns out to be an amount, it happens to be an amount that is too little to be liable. Right? To be liable on Shabbos, to be actionable, to be liable, you have to do an amount, you have to do that, you have to do those actions in a way that meets the criterion of a minimum standard, a minimum shear, what we call a minimum um, amount. So to carry, you have to carry more than a certain amount. It has to be a significant amount. If you carry less than that amount, it's not liable from a Torah perspective, right? It's not, the consequences are different than if you carry the statutory amount. What happens if you carry less than the standard amount in a vessel? Then the amazing consequence is, even though it's a massive vessel, you may carry an enormous pot, and inside it is a very small amount of food. The, the, the vessel, the pot, is there only to carry the food. You're exempt on the food, right? You're exempt on the pot as well. Even though it's a very significant thing, but the point is that it's tafel, that means it's subservient, it's secondary, it's only there for the purpose of what it carries. And if what it carries is not significant, it's not significant either. And that's the notion, right, of a predominant, a primary thing, and another thing that's annulled in the primary. That's called ikar and tafel, right? This, this idea in, ha- in halakha <coughs> is a very clear reflection of, of this thing in the world, or more accurately, the world is a reflection of the Torah, of the, of the, of the, the halakha. You have a fruit with its shell, you have primary and secondary. There are many expressions of this, many expressions of this duality in the world. Right? And the deep concept to understand is that the thing that's inside is primary. That primary thing is the essence. That's, what, that's what's here. The secondary thing is absolutely essential, but it dissolves. That means it melts into the primary thing because it's only there to be a part of it. And perfect harmony in the world is when the vessel and the contents become one. When the vessel tries to be its own, assert itself, then it destroys the content. I mean, the, perhaps the, one of the most important, perhaps the most important application in the human realm. In the human realm, right, we spoke about handedness, dominant and non-dominant, but that's the clearest indication. Is really the clearest example is really there's a body, and there's a neshama, there's a soul, right, which is primary. I mean, this generation one has to ask the question, right? one has to give it thought. Is. But there's no question that the neshama, the inner being, the word neshama, the word neshama really, that is an indication of essence. The root is shame. Shame always means the essence of the thing. Its name is its essence. The word sham, for example, is the same word. It means destination. It means end point. All the theirs you can point to, like shamaim. That means the constellation of all, the, 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 the accumulation of all the possible points of destination, right? The word nashama, sham, shame, of the three sons of Noah, of Noah, right? The one who becomes the Jewish people, who are the ones who carry this, the message of spiritual, spiritual meaning in the world. His name was shame as well. Right? The nashama, the inner being, is the essence, but it's carried in a vessel. The importance of the body is to the extent that it loyally carries the nashama through the world and gives it expression. That's what the body is there for. 
The body is not there to assert itself in a primary sense. The wrong grasp of life, right? The wicked and, and completely iniquitous grasp of life is that the body is what life is for. Then the is the animation within the body that makes the body's pleasures possible. That's not the correct vision. The correct vision is that the soul, the neshama, is the purpose of life, and the body has to be disciplined into carrying it correctly. Then the body and its pleasures become subservient to the neshama. Then they become elevated. If the body becomes primary and the neshama is there to animate a body, then the neshama gets dragged down to the level of the body. And perfect harmony, perfect inner harmony, is to live with a soul in a body where both are perfectly expressed. But they're expressed in a way that the body is the vehicle. When you get into a vehicle to go someplace... It's very important to remember that the vehicle is a means of getting there. When you get into a vehicle to go someplace and you lose your focus and you you start enjoying the vehicle and forget the destination, it's a complete misuse of the vehicle. The vehicle ceases to become a vehicle and the destination disappears entirely. Both, Both fail. It's reasonable to use a vehicle to get someplace that has its own importance. If the vehicle needs those angles, if it makes it more comfortable, makes you get there more safely or in some other way... but. You have to remember that every function of the vehicle has to be subservient to the fact that it's there to carry right, the traveler to the destination. The body is only a vehicle that carries you to your final destination. Then it's discarded. When you get to the destination, you don't stay in the vehicle. You get out, right? You don't stay on the train. When it gets to the station, you, you something wrong with you. <laughs> you may travel first class because it's comfortable. But when you get there, you know, you, you get out, right? I mean, otherwise, something very strange about the journey. And the journey of life is the same way. When you reach the end, you have to exit. You have to get out. No matter how comfortable or uncomfortable the body may have been, there's a time that comes to exit. And the reason is that the body is only there as a vehicle to carry one to that point of destination, and then it's discarded. See, I see the reverse of this is the source of all evil in the world. A person who thinks that the vehicle is the primary issue. So now the body is there, what you're living, what, the reason for living is the body. The Nishama is there to animate the body. So can you imagine the experience of having to discard the body? What remains after a lifetime is the nisham, is the soul. The body has its own ongoing existence, resurrection. We have to talk about that too. But the part that, that, that consi- that's consistent, I mean the, co- the part that has an eternal existence, the body also, the, same, the body as a loyal vehicle also has an eternal existence. But let's focus on, 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 on the phase of death itself. The part that remains, the consciousness that was, remains. The body has to go through disintegration. See, imagine a person who's correctly, living correctly, with the neshama, that inner, the inner passenger, is correctly attuned. That means he's moving towards a destination. When the destination is arrived, the person gets out, body comes to rest, and the neshama moves on. It's a completely harmonious journey and destination. But imagine a person whose journey is misdefined. Imagine a person whose lifetime is defined as the body. Can you imagine the pain of having to leave it behind? Imagine arriving in a situation where your neshama, your soul, your consciousness is absolutely clear. Completely clear. You know exactly who are you, what you are. And what you are is your body. That means your definition of who you are is your body. You spent your whole life aggrandizing and, and pandering to the body. And your whole consciousness became a body consciousness. And then you arrive at the end and what happens is the body disintegrates. And all you have in your mind is awareness of body. Can you imagine the pain? The Gemara talks about two people who are buried certain tzaddik, righteous individual who spent a night in the cemetery. And he ended up, uh, fascinating story in its own right, but one of the consequences was he heard people who were buried speaking. And one of the conversations that he picked up was two young girls, must have two girls who must have died when they were young, and they were, they were lying in that, base, in that cemetery. And he heard the conversation between these two girls. And the conversation was the one said to them, pass my comb. And she said, pass the makeup. They were discussing here, passing, they were talking about the tools of bodily beautification in the world. Can you imagine the pain of that? These are two people who have no face to paint. There's no face. The face is a, is a very, very gr- grotesque and the parody of what a beautiful face is in the world. Right? There's no hair to comb. She wants her comb. There is no hair to comb there. But why is she asking for a comb? These must have been two girls whose whole approach to life was physical beautification. That was what they devoted their consciousness to. So when you reach the next world, you can't be conscious of something that you weren't conscious of here. All you are, all your awareness is, all your neshama is, is what you built. So you move into that zone where the consciousness is neshama. Right? What is the neshama conscious of? Body. And the awareness of body is all there is. And the body isn't anymore. Can you imagine the, 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 the pain of that? The schizoid pain? And therefore, our approach to life is that we use the body richly. We don't abjure the body. We don't exit the body. We don't do that. We use the body, but we use it as a vehicle. 
when a, when, a, when a vehicle is used as a vehicle, and that's the focus constantly, you never get attached to it as anything more than a vehicle. Then two things happen. One is it takes you loyally to the destination, and the second is it becomes enjoyed, becomes enjoyable too, becomes perfectly harmonious. In fact, the result of the perfect harmony is that the body itself has an ongoing existence. Our teaching is, apart from this erection, that the body will again have a share and be united with the Nisham. Our teaching is that a body that's truly, truly loyal to the Nisham doesn't disintegrate at all. It doesn't need to. It doesn't need to go through a, through a lesson. If the lesson has been disciplined into the body even during life. And therefore, the potential for human pain is the dichotomy, that's the, ba- that's the battle between these two elements. But when the one is a vessel for the other, it's a vehicle, it's a protection, it's a shell around the fruit that protects it and enables it to grow. And protects it as so they both achieve their perfection. That's the harmony. Both need it. Not that the one is just a vehicle and it's exited. The mystery is that if that's done correctly, it achieves its own importance. The Gemara says that Rabbi and Antoninus were talking. Rabbi and Antoninus were... The Rabbi was the Rabbi Huda Anasi, right? The prince, Rabbi Judah the prince, the author of the Mishnah, editor of the Mishnah. He was very close to the Roman emperor of the time, the Roman Marcus Aurelius, right? Antoninus. He was a very great man, very great spiritually. Very great. They had a very close relationship. In fact, the connection with our Sedra is that Rashi points out that when, when, when Rivka was told that she had two nations in her womb, the two... The two, the two symbols of the two pinnacles, if you like, in, in, in this sense of those two nations, were Rebbe and Antoninus. That means the Jewish people and the Roman people. Rebbe is the focus of the Jewish people's, in that generation, pinnacle of Torah learning. And Antoninus, the Roman, right, whose, whose rule on earth is an, is an emanation, a manifestation of Esau, of Esau's rule, he is representing that side. And they're a very close friendship. Right? And, and Marcus Aurelius, Antoninus, insisted on serving Rebbe physically. And he wanted, him to be, he wanted himself to be, as it were, the vehicle for Rebbe's spirituality. And in that way, they would have that intense relationship. So, at one particular point in time, and there are fascinating discussions in the Talmud between the two of them. There's even one, one place where, Marcus, where Antoninus argues a certain point of view, and, the, and Rebbe says another point of view, and the Gemara says, Nirin divrei Antoninus. That means, his words appear to be true. That means, he argued with this great sage about a, a, a very, very interesting astronomical phenomenon, pathway of the sun, and exactly how it works. And there the Talmud says that he argued a particular point of view, and Rebbe argued another point of view, and the Talmud makes a decision that says his words appear correct, not Rebbe's. The Maral says his words appear correct. They appear correct. Rebbe's words are correct. But nevertheless, nevertheless, he was, he was very great. Very great. One of the questions he asked Rebbe was, he said, I'll show you how you can exempt yourself from judgment when you die. I can prove to you that there will be no judgment, no punishment. How? I'll show you why. What happens after death? The essence after death is the essence of an neshama, a soul, and a body. Right? They separate. That's what death means. The body lies inactive. That means the neshama can't energize it anymore. So what will Hashem do? Hashem will come and He'll take this, take this human being and He'll say, now it's time for judgment. So the body will say, the body will say to Hashem, Hashem, you can't punish me. Without the soul inside, I was nothing. I'm just clay. I'm earth only. I'm just made from the earth. If it had not been for the neshama that urged me and motivated me and directed me and led me to do all the things I did, wouldn't have been. So then Hashem turns to the soul and He says, time for judgment. And the soul says to Hashem, at one point it was the body. If you hadn't given me a body with all its urges and all its cravings, me, I'm perfect and spiritually pure. If you hadn't given me the body that led me into all those things, I wouldn't have any trouble. So therefore, yeah, whichever one Hashem tries to take out justice on, they will blame the other one. And they'll both be right. You understand? This... This Gemara talks about truth. It's not, it's not some frivolous claim. It's a deep, deep question. So Rabbi answered him like this. Fascinating. You see, these two men, these two men represent these two views. Rabbi represents the spiritual essence, and Antoninus represents the vision of the body. Correctly, correctly. That's why I asked this question. There are no accidental questions in the Talmud. Rabbi is the one who is the perfect content, as it were spirituality, and Antoninus is the one who is the perfect vessel. They were the relationship between Yaakov and Esau that should have been. They were the relationship between Jew and non-Jew that should have been. The non-Jewish function is to perfect the world. What is the function of the non-Jewish nations? What is their ideology supposed to be? What does their nature prompt them to do? It's to master the world. The non-Jewish nations are here to master the world and uplift it and beautify it and take complete control and make the world the most fantastically safe and beautiful place. And our function is to connect it to its spiritual source and we have a tremendous potential for harmony with them. 
We teach spirituality, that's what we brought to the world. There isn't a spiritual idea in the world that doesn't come from us. In the West, in the East, that's who we are. It all filters through us. With distortions, without distortions. And their function is to build the world. And the harmony should be that they build the vessel, they build the home, and we, yeah, we, we together, we, that's, that's a relationship. Remember this, important to try and come back to it if we can. So Rebbe represents this, and Ant- so they have this discussion, they have this discussion, which, the separation between the body and the neshama, that's what concerns Antoninus, he's quite right. So Rebbe said to him, I'll tell you an analogy, a marshal. You have to understand also that a marshal is a vessel for the meaning. You see, there's nothing in the world that doesn't obey this rule. When he gives him an analogy, he's providing a vessel for the inner content. Again, what is an analogy? Analogy is a vessel that carries the story. You don't mean the analogy. You mean the meaning. But you give an expression just like your neshama has expression in the world only through your body. So if I wish to convey an idea to you that cannot be conveyed in its abstraction, I give you a marshal. I'm providing a body, which is not the essence. Because an analogy, a marshal is not the thing itself. It's only a projection of the thing. But it's good enough to reflect the inner essence. So Rebbe, understanding the question like that, gives him a marshal, which is again the same methodology of discussion. See, everything in a... He says to him, there were two men. There were two men. And they went into an orchard. The one of them couldn't walk, and the other one couldn't see. One of them had legs that didn't function, one was blind. They wanted to steal the fruit in the orchard. So they made a partnership. What happened was, the person who couldn't walk sat on the shoulders of the person who couldn't see. And together, what happened was, the, 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 uh, the, the individual who carried him around, and the sighted one on his shoulders took all the fruit, and they ate all the fruit in the orchard. When they were lying on the grass under the trees, so full they couldn't move, right? the owner of the orchard arrived, and he was very angry. He saw all his fruit was stolen. These two bloated individuals lying there in the grass. He took a, a, a stick and he was about to beat one of them. So he went up to the individual who was, um, went up to one of the individuals and he said to him, look, started to beat, to beat him. So the, the blind man said to him, what are you beating me for? Right? What are you beating me for? I couldn't see. I could never have done this had it not been for him. He's the one who saw and therefore yeah, I was completely ineffective without him. So then he went to the layman and started beating him. So what are you beating me for? said, I couldn't get around. If, hey, if he hadn't carried me, we couldn't have done it. It's his fault. So what did, the, what did the farmer do? He stood them both up. He put the layman on shoulders of the blind man, just like they had been, and he beat them together. <laughs> <laughs> you see, the depth theories, understand, is a beautiful marshal. Such a perfect, you, you committed the crime as a partnership. Your punishment is given as a partnership. So, the, so, so therefore, the, the concept here, is that the reason for this resurrection, the reason the neshama gets put back into the body again, right, is because both partners, both partners here are, are, are partners in crime. Partners in crime. You could never have done those avarias if it hadn't been for the neshama animating the body, it would have just been dead tissue otherwise. On the other you couldn't have done mitzvahs either. Virtually all the mitzvahs in the Torah, now you understand more deeply why virtually all the mitzvot in the Torah, all the mitzvot are physical actions. Virtually every single mitzvah in the Torah is a physical action. There are a handful of, done, of those that are done with the mind, like Yahweh Hashem, Yerash Hashem, loving Hashem, fearing Hashem. Virtually all the mitzvahs in the book are done with the body. Isn't it strange that a physical system, that a, excuse me, that a spiritual system that teaches the, 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 the primacy of spirituality, isn't it strange that the expression of that system the Jewish religion is all physical actions. Isn't that remarkable? The answer is that's exactly the idea. The, the, the path to spirituality is through a physical expression. This concept of the, of the essence inside the vessel is exactly parallel to Torah inside mitzvahs. You know that? The concept of the Torah being the spiritual essence, the neshama, and mitzvahs being the physical expression, exactly the same parallel. You learn Torah, understand the wisdom of it, pure abstraction, pure, the world of pure wisdom, and it has to be learnt in order to do. Then you have to take those mitzvahs, and you have to take the, w- the wisdom and the learning, you have to express it in the world. How do you express it with your body? You do this with your hand, and this with your mouth, you've got to eat like this, you've got to take your body and put it in a sukkah. You have to move your body. Every part of the body is a mitzvah. All 248 limbs and organs of the body, express, each one expresses a mitzvah. Each one is brought to its perfection as a vessel for the particular light that shines inside that mitzvah, done with the body. The word mitzvah, the word mitzvah in Hebrew means being together. There's a connotation of mitzvah meaning command, tzivui. But the word mitzvah has the root of tzavta in the Aramaic word, but tzavta chada means in one bond. In modern Hebrew, you say the word tzavet means a crew. A crew is different individuals who work together. That's tzavet, that's tzavta, that's mitzvah. 
The root of the word mitzvah indicates togetherness. It means togetherness of this world and the next. Mitzvah means that when you do an action in the physical world, you connect to the source, to the root. This is also the depth behind the statement. The Talmud says, God ha-metzuvah v'oyseh. Greater is one who is commanded and does Greater is one who is commanded and obeys and does than one who does spontaneously. That's contrary to our intuition. We might think that someone who does a mitzvah spontaneously, that means an action, a good action spontaneously, one who does that spontaneously, we might think, is greater. But it comes to tell us, comes to tell us that um, it's greater to be commanded. Why? Many reasons. But one of the reasons is when you do a thing spontaneously, you simply manifest who you are. You cannot be no greater than yourself. But when you do an action because you're commanded, you here in this world express the one who's commanding. So you extend yourself all, up, all the way up to the source of reality. That means the mind that commands it, as it were, is his, and the body that acts it is mine. Remarkable thing, just like the connection between your head and your hand, when you conceive an action and you do it, but when you command it, you mean he conceives it and I do it. That's a massive escalation. Tremendous amplification of what I am. Elevation of what I am. So, are we, are we getting a picture? Are we developing a picture? There's two dimensions to the world. Every angle of the world has two dimensions. There's a neshama and a goof. There's a soul and a body. There's a light and a vessel. There's a husk or a shell and a fruit inside. There's ikar and tofel. There's, a, there's the, the, main, the main element and there's that which surrounds it as secondary. There's a dominant hand. There's the non-dominant hand. These are all manifestations of the same, the same idea. What's the problem with Yaakov and Esau? What is the battle? The debate between them is which one is primary. That's the debate. Yaakov comes to teach the world that what's primary here is spirituality. And that you, non-Jewish world, physical world, you're a vessel for this. Your job is to function loyally as a vessel, make it possible, to beautify and uplift the world. We make a partnership like this. And Esau comes to argue that the soul is there to serve the body. The soul is there to animate a body that can go out and enjoy its own pleasures and then live for itself. You see it so much. You see it so beautifully. Why don't he ask his father, let's go back to it again. Do you take my, sir? Do you elevate to sanctity salt and straw? You know what's unique about those two things? Both of those are absolutely essential demonstrations of things that are secondary. You know what salt is? Salt you put with food to make it taste better. If you know anything about cooking, if you know anything about the science and art of cooking, cooking, you know that the, what condiments do, the correct use of condiments, of spices, of herbs, of salt, right, which is the most basic of all Elements of, of the, the function of salt is not that you shouldn't taste the salt. It should be used in exactly the right measure that makes the food taste better. When you add something to a dish, the correct method is not to add the thing to the dish so you taste that thing. That's not... Yeah, that, that's, when the food doesn't taste good, you add so much that you can't taste the food. That's, you're hiding the food. That's not the idea. <laughs> the idea of adding a flavoring, the idea of adding something, salt, is to bring out flavor... In the thing itself. You, you, is this clear? You add enough. Anybody knows anything about cooking knows that. You add the condiment, you add the salt in order to bring out the natural flavor. It's remarkable. But without enough salt, the natural flavor isn't there. It gives, it doesn't add its own, it doesn't speak of itself. It brings out the... That's what salt is for. What is, what is straw? What is tavern? What is straw? Straw is the part that covers the wheat. It's the, it's, the ne- it's the surround straw, yeah, is the part that surrounds the stalk, the wheat. There's the fruit, the, the produce itself, the seed, and then you get the straw, which is tafel. Straw is the, the part that holds it up and surrounds it. So you notice what his questions were. He came to his father and he said, do you elevate to sanctity? Right? His concept was, in his mind, his concept was, what we look for here is the shells. We look for the husks. What we want is the body. We look for physicality. What's the purpose of the soul? Simply to animate the body so the body can enjoy itself. What does he do when he comes to the ultimate message? What is the ultimate message of his death? So what happens? Abraham Avinu dies. Abraham dies. And he comes back from the funeral, from the Levi, and he finds his brother Yaakov making a red soup. Lentil soup. So what does he say? Feed me. Feed me. And he pours it down his throat like a camel. And he, the cost that he... What does he, what does he pay for this soup? His brother charges him a price. What's the price? His firstborn is right as a firstborn. He says, who needs firstborn? Who needs any status of right? Firstborn always means spirituality. Firstborn always means the role of being the priest. The priesthood, that's what it is, the firstborn. It's to be a, a servant of Hashem. To be, the leader, leaders, to be the leader in that area. He says, who needs this? He's just seen death. 
Who needs spirituality in the world? Everything comes to an end. Forget that. Give me the food. And he swaps it. Yaakov sees that he's not fit for that role. Yaakov sees that he's not fit for the role of understanding spirituality. He sells it. He gives it away. What he wants, what he wants is physicality, is the body. He's prepared to sell the right to spirituality. It doesn't mean anything to him. On the contrary, he sells it for a bodily need. Why was Yaakov making lentils? Why was he making lentils? Lentils are round. You know what lentils look like? They look, they're round. So Rashi says that Yaakov is making lentils, our sages bring down, because that is the meal, traditional meal you make when someone dies. When you, when Loyalan is a funeral, when you come back, there's a, there's a meal that's called the meal of Havra'ah. It's the meal of, the meal of, uh, it's a beginning of the rehabilitation of a person who's a mourner. Why? Because you take a thing that is round, there are many symbolisms. One is that it's round, which means it's like a cycle of life that it goes on. You take eggs sometimes. Rashi mentions yeah, one of the things you give a person is an egg. Because an egg is a symbol of, it's completely around the cycle of life. It also is the beginning of rebirth, but it has no mouth. The symbolism here is the symbolism of the ongoing cycle of life. And also the, 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 the issue of a person who has no... He's a closed... He lies closed now in a, in a, in a circle that has no, that has no expression. Right? It's a very serious message. And therefore, a person comes back from a funeral. To go to a funeral, see somebody die, not get the message of what life's all about, what, that's a real tragedy. The dying of the person is one tragedy. But if the living don't learn the message of life from a person who dies, that's a real, that's a double tragedy. So therefore, what do we do? We sit down and we focus on what that means. And the first, thing, the first meal we eat is a meal that teaches what life and death really mean. So Esau comes home. You hear what's happening? He comes home. He finds Yaakov engaged in his spiritual action like Yaakov always does. Why is he making a meal of lentils? Not because he's hungry. He's making a meal of lentils because this is the action that a Jew does in terms of understanding what life is all about. That which is a seed and grows, which is round. So Yaakov, Esau comes and looks and he, what he sees is food. He sees a red, a red stew, a red soup. He says, feed me. So Yaakov sees that he sees that instead of the spirituality inside what this food means, the message that it carries. He understands that here's a worldview that looks at the world superficially and doesn't see what the message is. The, the spiritual path involves looking at the world and penetrating the, penetrating the husk. If you're the kind of person who, who walks down the road and all you see is the shells, you see the bodies, you see the advertisements for the body, you see the adornments for the body, and you start developing a consciousness that is body-oriented. Isn't that a spiritual path? That's a vision that looks at a human being and says, this human being is an accidental version of a chimpanzee. That's a, that's a, this, this, this person looks exactly like a gorilla. Why? Because people do look like gorillas. The body is an animal body. There's no question about that. No, not a mistake. The body is an animal body. So a person looks with those eyes at the world and they see, look at a human being, they see a body. Quite right. Doesn't. But the eyes of spirituality must penetrate the, penetrate the husk. When you look into the body of a gorilla and the body of a person, they are arguably the same. Gorilla may even be better. Does a lot of things, bodily things better. But there's a difference in what it carries. It's a vehicle for a different passenger. But that takes insight. Not sight, insight. You have to see beyond the skin. You have to see around corners. You have to be able to see. The first rule in the spiritual path is not to see face, to see the face value, to see skin deep. You have to see inside. And that's the problem. Do you take the world and you say, there's nothing inside. What is inside? Just enough energy to keep the outside moving. That's what it is. Now this driver is here to keep the vehicle going. What a tragic view of life. But a person who sees life correctly sees that this vehicle is here to carry the passenger where he's going. And that's the battle. Asaph battles in the womb. He wants to express the reality that the world is here, not for its physical. And we are here to... And Yaakov wants to express that the, the, no, the world's not here for that. The world is here for its spiritual core. And, and the physicality needs to be there and elevated to its beautiful potential, but it has to be there as a, as a vehicle, as a vessel carrying the, carrying the light. That's the argument. That's the argument of Esau and Yaakov. Yaakov is the voice, the voice of Torah. Esau is the hands, hands of expression in the world. What does this have to do with Shabbos, with Shabbat? Let's understand this deeply. The wrong concept. It was such a non-Torah idea in our minds. We think Shabbos, a day of rest. You need to rest. After all, you work hard all week. It's a very healthy institution. It's not the idea. It's not the idea. The concept of Shabbos, the concept of Shabbat, the primary concept of Shabbos. So many messages. But the primary concept of Shabbos is that the world has two dimensions. There's the week, which is a moving towards and a serving of something. 
And the Shabbos, which is essence. The Shabbos, which is essence. The message of the weekend Shabbat is the message of this world and the next. The essence of this world is the next. The next is extracting eternity from this world. The world after this is that everything you do here lives eternally. Here it's only a vessel, it's a vehicle. What could be a more obvious and explicit vehicle? It's a journey, you know, to a destination. But the next world is an eternal destination. The next world consists only of what you extract from it on the journey. That message is so important that we need to remind ourselves every week. <coughs> every week is the only festival that falls weekly. There are plenty of other important ideas in Torah thinking, right? Torah, once a year we celebrate that. Freedom, Pesach, once a year. Right? Well, the message of every festival that we have, we remind ourselves once a year. At least in the observance of the day. Or Shabbat every seven days. Every seven, why? Because there's one thing you can't afford to forget. There's one thing you can remember from year to year that energizes the year. One thing you can't afford to forget, and that's you going someplace. You can't afford to forget that. Every week you need to be reminded that it's a journey to a destination, and you do it again and again and again every week. Our most basic teaching about Shabbat is that it's a fragment, it's a whiff, it's a sense of the next world. The expression is Shabbat is me'en olam haba. It's one-sixtieth of the sensation of the next world. That means paradoxically, when you enter Shabbos, you're moving from this world to the next, and you're experiencing the spiritual ver- version, strange to say, what death is. The concept of Shabbos is that when you enter Shabbos, you have to stop. What do you have to stop? All creative activity. You've got nothing to do with stop exerting yourself. That's not the issue. It's a very secondary issue. People think Shabbat is not working. Many people in the modern era, they say, look, this is all outdated. Why? In the old days, you know why you can't light lights? You ever heard this argument? You know why you can't light lights? Because you're not allowed to work. In the old days, you know how Jews lit lights? They rubbed sticks together. You know, they struck stones. To, you know, they lived in caves, didn't they? <laughs> Today, it's a flick of a switch. Therefore, it's not... But the concept is so mistaken. The concept of igniting a light has got nothing to do with exertion. Shabbos got nothing to do with exertion in the first place. You know, halakhically, if you want to carry your furniture around the house until you're dropping on Shabbat, if you have the kind of wife who makes you do that sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, technically speaking, halakhically, it's allowed. It's not a good idea. There's better things to do on Shabbos. But the question of exertion is not the issue. There is a question, a rabbinic question. There's a side issue of not doing unnecessary unnecessary, um, frustrating activity. But exertion is not the issue. It's not the issue. The issue is creative activity, mastery of the world. Striking one match, igniting one light. is a tremendous act of creative mastery. It's got nothing to do with the degree of how hard it is to do. Carrying one small object from one place to another in certain conditions. Writing two letters. Writing two letters. Erasing two letters for the purpose of writing. Planting a seed. not an exertion. Put a seed in the ground. Pour some water on a seed. The 39 forbidden creative activities on Shabbat are those activities which were used to build the Mishkan, to build the sanctuary in the desert, the Mishkan, and Kabbalistically the Mishkan is the microcosm of the universe. The same actions that we, that we prohibit, that we're not allowed to do on Shabbat, are the actions that were done to build the sanctuary, the vessel for Kedusha, for sanctity in the world, and that is the exact microcosm of the actions he does to build the world. So on Shabbat he stops building the world. On Shabbat, they stop building that sanctuary, that Mishkan. And on Shabbat, what we do is we stop those activities that are building the world. Why? Shabbat is the day when you remind yourself that the building comes to an end. That this journey has a destination. And therefore, the whole week, what you're doing is building, constructing, right? Creative activity, mastery of the world in its construction. Then the sun goes down on Friday afternoon and you have to stop. The message is that one day the sun will go down. You'll have to stop. You can't afford to forget that. The Marshal the Chazal gave <coughs> if you go on a sea journey... A sea voyage, you don't take provisions. When you're out there at sea, you don't have. If you didn't take, you don't have. That's our vision of the next world. When you get there, if you don't, what you didn't prepare, what you didn't build in yourself, you don't have there, no opportunity. Why? Because the body now inactivated. If the body's inactivated, all the consciousness in the world can't produce any change. Because there's no tool to express that change. There's no vessel to carry. There's no journey possible. All that's left is the momentum that was set up here. Are we getting some understanding here? Shabbat's got nothing to do with having a nice day of rest. That may be useful too. It may be healthy. It's a good institution. But that's good for the non-Jewish world too. They need to rest. That's not Shabbat. Shabbat is the concept... You know what's interesting? The Torah never mentions Shabbos other than it mentions six days of work first. You know that? Every time the Torah refers to Shabbos and the mitzvah of Shabbat, it says six days work and then keep Shabbat. You know why? Shabbat is only meaningful to the extent that you work for six days. If you keep Shabbos every day, Every day you do nothing. 
Shabbat's even more depressing than the rest of the days. <laughs> the concept is that you, you move to... You can't enjoy destination if you never journeyed. Destination is meaningful only to the extent that you arrived someplace. Every process is justified by its result. Is that right? Every process is justified by the result, the output. If there's no output, the journey is meaningless. Imagine a person who invents a machine. You go to this uh, famous investor, inventor's lab, and you see the fellow has a machine there that's absolutely incredible. Ma- marvelous machine. You ask him what it does, he shows you. Look, at the most stupendous machine ever invented. It keeps itself going. It fuels itself. It oils itself. It cleans itself. Marvelous self-maintaining, self-generating, unbelievable thing. So to him, and what does it do? It's not nothing. It just keeps itself going and it demands a fool. Demands a fool. If the machine makes me a cup of coffee or you know, makes a pizza, you know, so then it's wonderful that it keeps... But if it doesn't do anything except keep itself going, then what's the purpose of the machine? The machine is justified by its output. There's a message. The message is, what are you living for? Are you living so that you can earn a living so you can survive so you can go to work tomorrow to earn a living so you can eat so you can go to work the next day? For what? For two or three weeks at the end of the year where you collapse semi-conscious so you can do the same thing again the next year? That's what you're here for? There's a message. The message is, we get so caught up in the activity, we fail... Isn't that ridiculous? In any meaningful act- in any activity in life, even trivial things, you always set a goal, a destination. Nobody undertakes a journey unless they know where they're going. Unless they're really problematic. The first thing you decide in the journey is destination, no? isn't it? The first time you get, we get on a train, what's the first issue? Not as first class or second class or faster or slow. The first question is where are you going? So you run a business. Don't you, get, don't you sit down your business and make some kind of goal and sit around the boardroom table and make a plan about how you're going to get there? Don't you do that? You have a sports activity. Don't you set goals? You want to meet certain criteria, certain standards? Who would dream of doing otherwise? But when it comes to you and your life, you just sort of more or less hope you're coping. What about setting a goal? What about marriage? What about raising a family or children? How come in those critical areas that life is all about, don't even think of setting a goal? You're just going on a journey. Is it a straight journey? You're heading towards a destination? I never thought about that. Just, you know, what are you thinking about? It's halibai. Today wouldn't be any worse than yesterday. That's what you're here for? That's a disaster. That's not what you're here for. If there's a journey, if there's one journey here, it's life. And if the most important thing about a journey is destination, you have to ever think about that sometime. People die, you know, there's plenty of messages. And therefore, the concept is, Shabbos reminds you. That's what Shabbos is here for. Shabbat has got nothing to do. Shabbos is the concept that the sun goes down, you have to stop. Stop. Think what it will be like one day. When the activities come to an end, how will you feel if you're not prepared? What will happen one day when the sun finally goes down, you realize it's not going to come up again? And there are a lot of things that were left undone. That's problematic. So every week you remind yourself, you, you move. Friday you move faster, it's a mitzvah to run. Friday afternoon is a crescendo, climax, whatever it is, midday. And then you have a sensation that it stops now. Stops. What stops is no more creative activity. What are you supposed to do on Shabbos? Simply enjoy what you've produced. If you've spent the week producing something, if you're a different person this week than you were last, if you've spent six days here building yourself, there's something new to who you are, got a new insight, a new sensitivity, a new elevation, then Shabbos, what could be better? Just this rich enjoyment of what it is that you are. It's a relationship of marriage, let's say. So the week is a week of work, of giving. What is Shabbos? It's an enjoyment of the production. Family, self, even the self, even the self alone. The self alone is a, is a rich field of, of development. It has to be developed. You have to be a different and higher and better person each week than you were the week before. Then you're going to Shabbos, a time of consolidation, a time of enjoyment, of, of relishing what, what has become. Can you see now can you see now why non-Jews are forbidden to keep Shabbos? You know that a non-Jew is allowed to perform any mitzvah in the Torah. You know that? If a non-Jew wishes to perform any mitzvah, they can do it as a person who is not commanded. There's tremendous merit for that. It's not as great as doing a thing because you commanded. We spoke about that. But to do a correct thing spontaneously for the, is a wonderful thing. And a non-Jew is allowed to perform all the mitzvahs in the Torah, except two. One is learning Torah for its own sake, and second is keeping Shabbos. <coughs> You know, when a person comes to convert to Judaism, a convert goes through the process, the educational process is that this convert starts pre- uh, preparing, and what do you say? Practicing all the mitzvot, right? They have to learn what they need to practice, and they start preparing. There are two things they may not do. The classic is Shabbos. They have to, you know that? A convert, before the act of conversion, they have to secretly, every Shabbos, break Shabbos. Do you know that? 
It's a requirement. I know of an individual who was going through the conversion process and he was learning by a certain great rabbi, it happened to be in America, and he came to him and he said to him, Rabbi, I'm unable to do this. I just can't break. It means so much to me that, that I'm unable to do it. I cannot find it in my heart on Shabbos to go and desecrate the Shabbos and break it. They rejected him from conversion. The primary reason, of course, is that you don't know how to listen to the sages. You won't be successful. But the, 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 the issue is, the issue is, why is that? And the answer is this. The non-Jewish reality in the world is building the world. That is the non-Jewish contribution, is making the world beautiful and uplifting the world. So what are you taking a day off for? You take a day off, you're desisting from your, from your tachlis. This is not what you're here for. Do you understand? They are the weak, we are Shabbos. And the two go hand in hand, with perfect harmony here. Torah learning, of course, Torah learning for its own sake, is also a sensation of destination. You don't learn Torah in order to do anything. You don't learn Torah in order to know anything in order to do anything. There's a learning like that too. But the essence of Torah learning is learning it for its own sake. Isn't that a sensation of the next world? You're doing something for no other sake. Everything that's done for the sake of something that results is a journey to a destination. It's the manufacture of a product. Everything that's done for its own sake is a destination itself. That is the product. When you sit down and learn Torah for no sake other than enjoying the Torah itself, knowing it and enjoying it, you're living in the next world. It's not a non-Jew's role. You get to Shabbos, where on Shabbat you do nothing other than enjoy what you are. You cease building the world. That's our role. That's our function, is to teach that message, to transition from this world to the next. And therefore, let's try and rid ourselves of the misconception that Shabbos is a day of rest, and you've got to sleep, and... The issue of Shabbat is desisting from these acts of creativity that are assertions of mastery where the world is built. And in those, and you can't do it unless you're knowledgeable. You have to study. To study. We have here on Monday nights a class. You're all invited. But now we have a text class. We don't make speeches. We sit down with a book and we learn through the text. And we're right now learning the laws of Shabbat. You can't keep Shabbos. You can't get into the spiritual realm of that incredible elevation which is living in the essence of the world. You can't do that unless you know the technicalities. You have to know what's allowed, what's forbidden, how you go about it. Very detailed, tremendously detailed. as detailed as the world itself. And therefore, this is the parallel. There are many levels of parallel. I don't have to speak about it. It's too great a length now. But when you compare, you compare the transition from Friday afternoon, Arab Shabbos to Shabbos, you find there are many very, very potent p- parallels between that experience and leaving this world and moving to the next. You know that? Many customs that we have. Many of the customs that, what do we do on Friday? There's a custom to wash, bath, trim the nails, go to mikveh. Do you know that many of those are the things that are done to a body that's left this world when a person dies? Get washed, nails are trimmed. In some communities, the body's put in a mikveh before being buried. There's a deep meaning here. It's not supposed to be a sad meaning. The meaning is that there's a practice here. There's a, there's a moving from Shabbos, into, from, from the week into Shabbos, where things stop. And there's a reminiscent, there's something suggestive here, something redolent of the transition from this world to the next, where the big week of life moves into Shabbos, which is there are many other elements as well. Perhaps just mention one. The parallels. You know, you know, there's a very interesting law, detail of a law, halachically, halachic concept, which is difficult to understand. But I hope with what we've discussed this evening, it will be a little bit more meaningful. Do you know there's a law called muktzah? Right? Tonight, unfortunately, we can't study all the laws of Shabbat. One of the laws of Shabbat is called muktzah. That's a rabbinic institution that certain things may not be moved. Right? Certain things, for example, things that are used to do forbidden activities, like let's say writing is forbidden, so an instrument of writing one doesn't move on Shabbat. Right? The rabbis put a protective fence, unless you come, by handling it, you may come to write. So they made one layer of protective fence around the laws of Shabbat. What's fascinating is, the definition of the mukta status of an object, 
whether a thing is muktzah or not, is defined by what its status is when the sun goes down on Friday afternoon. Do you know that? It's not necessarily what its status appears to be now. Its status is defined, what was the nature of this object at the instant that we call Ben Hashmashis, when it was, that instant when the day became the evening on Friday, Arab Shabbos to Shabbos, at that moment, defines, example would be, I'll give you a classic example, let's say you have a surface on which an object is placed, that is muktzah. Let's say you have a table, for example. That is called in halakha, that's called a basis. Basis means it's a basis or a surface on which another object is placed. Let's say you have candlesticks on the table, or you have money or a pen. Those objects are muktzah on Shabbos. Right? Let's say on Friday afternoon, every Shabbos, you have a table, and on the table are muktzah objects only. The sun goes down, sun goes down, those objects are now muktzah. But the table is also the table, the surface, the supporting surface is also muktzah because it was. Why? Why? It was there only as a support for objects and therefore it is, like we said, secondary to those objects. Of course, if there's a mixture of objects, some of which are allowed and some which are not, then the table doesn't become muktzah. But if your table is a surface, what is a table for? Only for what it supports, isn't it? It is tafel, it is secondary to that which it supports. And therefore, if the objects on the table are only in the category of muktzah, the table itself has the same status. Now, what happens if during Shabbos, those objects are removed? They get removed, the child moves them, an animal knocks them off. The table remains muktzah. You know why? It's a normal table. Table's on muktzah on Shabbos. This one is. You know why? Because when the sun went down on Erev Shabbos, that was its status. Once that was its status, it does not change. There's a freezing of reality. Can you hear the message here? There's a freezing of reality. When the sun goes down and Shabbos enters, the reality is frozen. When you leave this world and you move into the next, you become frozen. That's the message. Things don't change later. The definition... There's another message here as well, which is a frightening message. Frightening message. I'll mention it. How are things frozen? Things are frozen as they are in their last instant. Right? In their last instant of existence, things are frozen. Correct? They do not reflect an average of the process that they... Example would be like this. I mean, the message, let's say it clearly. What you look like in the next world is, way, is the way you look in the last moment of your life. What you look like in the next world is not an average of your lifetime. It's not like that. It looks... You look... You freeze. How you freeze is the way you are then. The sun goes down. That's when the freezing takes place. If you change in the last moment of your life, the way you reflect it forever is as you were in that last moment. There's a loss of the previous... Let me give you a marshal. Let's provide a vessel for this light. Let's say you go to a clay, a pottery class. You know, a, 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 they give you soft clay. You have an hour to mold the clay. Right? Let's assume you spend the hour, you make something very beautiful. At the end of the hour, it goes onto a conveyor and into a kiln where it gets fired. Once clay gets fired, there's no more changing. Right? And that's frozen. Baked. Solid. This beautiful object is moving into the kiln. At the last instant, you scrunch it into something ugly. It's fired that way. It doesn't bear the shape of the beauty that it had before. Converse, if you spend your whole hour messing around, you make nothing. A few minutes before the end, you realize it's coming close to the time. You scramble to make something beautiful. Very hard. Very hard. Don't leave it for the last moment. Very hard to make a beautiful construction in the last few seconds. No, not recommended. But if you fashion something, it gets fired that way. If you do tshuva in the last moment of your life, right, you correct your whole consciousness, not, a, not recommended, a very risky process to leave it for then. But if you are gifted with that opportunity in the last moments of your life, you can radically change, that's you, you look, tshuva is valid. Tshuva is valid. You're saying there's a freezing at that last, in fact, it's even more frightening. I mean, once we're doing this, let's terrify ourselves thoroughly. <laughs> and that is that at the last moment of life, there's a final ordeal which challenges this. You know that? We have a tradition that in the final moment of life, or even beyond the final moment, there's one transitional moment where there's a special challenge. The last of life's ordeals, then perhaps in one way the most difficult, it's the ordeal of pure faith. Pure emunah. There's nothing left but faith. Logic is switched off entirely. All the proofs are against you. The only thing you have to carry you through, the deeper sources say it's like a woman in labor. Labor does not speak of a life-giving process. Labor looks like the opposite. Labor looks like two individuals are dying. 
Labour feels like at least one is dying, can assure you. At least I have it on good authority. And yet, it's that difficult experience that yields life. But the final phase of this process called pregnancy is an ordeal. The final phase of this thing called life, and the final thing of this final phase of this thing called history, is also one final showdown ordeal, where it looks like we're wrong and they're all right, if they know that as a Jew. What is this ordeal of faith? Let's also say, again, it's lengthy to go into. The Gemara says that a worker has to work until nightfall. There's a lucky discussion in the Talmud. It says a man has to work arif. A person has to work until evening. Yeah, for this, the Talmud derives the halachic principle that under certain circumstances, a worker can only be expected to come to work after sunrise. You can't demand that a worker should be at his place of work. Under, I'm not going to go into the conditions now, but you can't demand that your worker should be at the place of work at sunrise. He doesn't have to travel in the dark. You can only demand that he leaves at sunrise and arrives at your place of work, however long it takes him to get there. But you can demand that he stays with the till sundown and he travels home on his own time. How do we know that? Because the verse says that a man shall work a day arev until evening. That's what it says. However, the deeper commentary say that it means something else. Working until evening means doesn't only mean working for your boss until evening. It means working for your boss until evening. That means you have to work for him until it gets dark. Ad ad That means the last thing that happens in your life is the lights go out, becomes dark, and there's one final work you have to carry. What is that? Before the vision of, of moving towards another reality where a certain light is seen and certain people in your family come to meet you, a lot of that discussed in the Gemara. But before that happens, there's a moment of pure darkness. Pure darkness. You've left this world, but before entering the next, there's a moment of pure, utter, complete sensation, complete nothingness. And that moment of complete blackness, your own lower self, your, what we call your Yetzirah, your own lower energy comes to you and says, you see, I told you there's nothing here. And if you lose it in that moment, you lose everything. The last ordeal. The last ordeal is one of them. All you have is emuna. All you have is your tenacious attachment to that which you know is correct, even though it doesn't look that way. That's what it is. Right? Of course, there's nothing unfair. Things are only given that are capable of dealing with, obviously. But the message is, the message is that, and the way that moment looks, that's the way your eternity looks, a very deep sense. You see the parallel again with Shabbos? Sun goes down, it's a critical moment. That's when Kiddush is made, a woman lights candles then, special light, special light you have to have on Shabbos. <coughs> so you make Kiddush, that's a sanctification. That's the transitional time, a remarkable thing, special time. And therefore, what did we learn this evening? <coughs> let's, try and, let's try and summarize. We learned that there are always two dimensions to the world. There's the dimension in the world, which is the Ikka, that means the, the essence, the light inside. There's the dimension called Tofel, that is the subservient or secondary dimension, that which is the vessel. The vessel carries the light. Can't light, strike a light without something to ignite. Can't do it. You can't have light on its own. You can't have a neshama that can do anything without a body. You can't have a body that can do anything without a neshama inside. You don't have fruit unless it has a peel that holds it, a nut without a shell. You don't have wheat without the straw. That is the way the world is constructed. And the question is, whose vision of the world do you have? You have Esau's vision of the world. He sees the lentils and he sees food. Or Jehovah's vision of the world, he sees the lentils and he sees the cycle, he sees an ongoing process, he sees what death and life mean. You have to develop Jewish eyes, you have to look at the world, you have to look at your body as a vehicle for your neshama. You pay attention to the body so it should be a loyal vehicle, that's what the body is meant for. Then the body achieves a spiritual perfection, so does the neshama. But you see your body as where you're heading, as where you're going, and your soul, your mind, your consciousness is there to serve the body in big trouble. And we practice this message, but there's no more important message than we practice it every week. Once a week we practice it, we move, and we move in a direction, we move towards a destination. And the, and the journey is defined by the destination. You move from the week, one day to the next, the development, sun goes down Friday afternoon, Shabbos, Arab Shabbos, Shabbos comes in, a rich sense of destination, of having arrived at destination. And therefore the mitzvahs of Shabbos are not desisting from work. The mitzvah of Shabbos is you desist from those creative activities because that's how you build Shabbos. You build the world during the week by doing those activities. You build Shabbos by not doing those activities. Because during the week you're building journey, and during Shabbos you're building destination. And therefore the sensation of Shabbos is called Me'en Olam that's the sensation of the next world. You know it says that, whenever it says Me'en Olam the Gemara says that each of these things is one-sixtieth. Sleep is a sixtieth of death. A dream is one-sixtieth of prophecy. Shabbos is one-sixtieth of the world to come. One in sixty. What does that proportion mean? 
But we can take an example from some of the things we've discussed here. You know, halakhically, 1 in 60 is considered the borderline of taste. You know that? If some milk falls into a meat mixture less than 1 in 60, you can eat it. Why? Less than 1 in 60 gives no taste. More than 1 in 60, you can taste the milk in the meat, you can't eat it. So we see that 1 in 60 is the borderline of sensation, the borderline of taste. Shabbos is the borderline of being able to sense the next world. If you live it incorrectly, you don't feel, on the contrary, a very depressing day. If you live Shabbos correctly, you can taste a sensation. You can actually experience and glow of the next day. You have to live it correctly. You have to move out of the world. If Shabbos is the same rush, the same frenetic activity with all the imposition of all the externality, and you don't extract yourself from that, Shabbos not Shabbos. But if Shabbos is a, is a lifting out, a time out, where there's no imposition, there's no infraction, there's no intrusion of the external world. You know, most of us don't even have time in life to be who we are. You know, we're so busy. We are so busy. We don't have time to relate to anyone around us. You know that? Families don't even... Many families don't even have any... As a family, people don't even have time to get... People are so busy rushing off that so cross paths in the night, like ships in the night. Shabbos, at least, you sit down there, no entry. Is it conceivable today that a family should sit down to a meal that the phone won't ring five times? That somebody's not there because the mother's just taken this daughter off to some absolutely essential extramural activity like ballet dancing on horseback or some other <laughs> absolute essential that the child has to have. So who even spends any time together? Isn't it incredible to have a day where there is nothing else but to enjoy each other's, to enjoy who, to the company, to enjoy the, to have some isolation with yourself? When last did you get an hour when there wasn't a dozen intrusions. Shabbos, a remarkable thing. There is no telephone. There's nothing else. There's no media. There's nothing. It's you. Of course, if you haven't built anything, it's a most frightening day. If you haven't built anything, if there's just an echo when you find yourself on your own, that's very unpleasant. But if the week has been spent, there's a consciousness that's been developed, and there's a, there's a movement, and the week has been used to develop something genuine. So Shabbos is not empty, hollow echo. There's a rich sense of the work that's been done, and the, the result, time to relish the the result, such a message. And therefore, let's take a message out of the Pasha, which is that there's a Yaakov and an Esav tussle here. It's not that he wants the next world and he wants this world. There would have been no argument. He wants to define the next world in terms of this world. That's what he wants. And he wants to define this world in terms of the next. And that's our vision. Our vision is that we inhabit both worlds. We elevate this one to the next one. This one becomes the stuff and material of the next world. That's our purpose here. Right? We want to get away from a world that teaches us that that world is only to serve this. There is a spiritual world, but it's only here to keep this thing going and enjoying its pleasures. The truth is, the tragedy of that is you don't really enjoy its pleasures. Because if you live only for this, every time they, they go faster and faster, they last less and less. But when you know that this is only a journey, it takes you someplace, then you enjoy the journey too, not only arriving at the destination. And therefore that is the essential message of Shabbos. Right? It's a question of spiritual existence. It's a question of not becoming, but simply of being.